Free Game. It's your host, Luke Jirasi. Um, today, it's actually just me in here with uh, with Michael Goldberg. No, no co-host today. Um, so I had the pleasure of meeting Mike. I think one of the first people I actually met at that event. Um, I so this, so. I, I think so. I think so. For um, me too. This Elite 365 program that Jesse Itzer kind of put together, and just the most interesting people. There's the most interesting room I've ever been in, and I've been in some interesting rooms in my life. That was wild. Um, so Michael was was the CEO of a large hospital in, in New York City during COVID, which was obviously greatly impacted. Um, I, I think you said they won an award, right? Or maybe not. Multiple awards oh, for multiple many different awards. things. But um, uh, there, there's a there's a documentary based off of what we experienced, and uh, and ultimately it's it's very well known. Th- yeah, yeah, it's just it's super awesome. So. What was it like living through a pandemic at a ho- as a hospital leader in one of the first places impacted in the country? It, very surreal to start. And, and I actually, to back up a second, I just want to say thank you for the invitation to come and, and speak course, with man. you on of the course. Free Game Podcast and how incredible it was to meet you and connect with you in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin and, and do some of the things that we did there, which were absolutely just life-changing in so yeah. many ways. And as you said, the people that we got to do it with are just... I would love to see them on on here and listen to their stories because two days wasn't enough. It wasn't and, enough, and it was, uh, and just great people. And, and just kind of touch base what we did. We actually jumped in ice water in you know Minnesota and Wisconsin, um, like thirty two point. It took them like two days to to cut through the ice. It's not an exaggeration. Was, I think it was like eighteen inches. Yeah, yeah. Because we got there, and when we got there, they cut all the way. The chainsaws went dead. They couldn't cut through it. They had to keep cutting in the night and into the next morning before they finally got it open. It was it was nuts. It was like a swimming pool in the middle of a frozen lake. <laughs> right. And and it was actually warmer water than it was temperature outside. Yeah. I think it was eight degrees outside, so the water was warmer than what we were experiencing outside where we were sleeping. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, really incredible experience. And Michael had found that program right after. You you explain how kind of how you found the program and and all that. Yeah, so it um, I got an email about it. Towards uh, you know I'll get to some of the punchline. I left the organization that I was at uh, after two years leading the hospital through a pandemic and and all the other great things that I got to do there for 21 years with some incredible people. I mean we talked about just now some of the people we met in, in Elite 365. But when you talk about healthcare and you talk about the people who are delivering the care and planning the care and strategizing for the community that they serve. I, I've had the gift of being able to work with some of the most talented, incredible, caring people. And and I, I have them in the highest regard for what we've lived through together. Um, but I went through that experience and I decided, having been through it after about two years of it, right, and, and at this point it's a little bit longer than that, um, it was going to be time for a change and I needed to do something different in my life and I needed to connect differently with my family. And, and we'll talk more about, I'm sure, the, the pandemic. But one of the things that I saw, in addition to great triumph and success and, and connection and the team being there and showing up when the world was shutting down, um, I saw a tremendous loss. There were there were hundreds of people who lost their lives on, uh, you know, due to the pandemic. And, and it's a partially different view than what some people see when you're just out in the public and you're not living in a, in a hospital setting. And I wanted to reflect on that at some point in time and say, what's the lesson we can get out of that? Like, why are we going through a pandemic and how can we as people be better? Um, and so my lesson that I took away from it was that I wanted to be better 
at home. I wanted to be better outside of work. I wanted to be better connected with my family. And so uh, towards the end of the year, I left the, the, the role that I was in. And, and at that same time, you know, I, I don't know what you call it, fate. You call it, um, you call it something that uh, is just timed appropriately and not anticipated, not planned. I don't believe in coincidence. Yeah, I, I, I want to talk more about that, too. And, um, and I got this email from Jesse Itzler saying, hey, I've got this great mentoring program that's starting up with these incredible mentors, very talented in their own right, and uh, would you like to be a part of it? And I sat down with my wife, and we went through what we knew for, for the information in the program, and, and we said, there's no better time. I mean, think about it. How can, how can this email have come at a better time? I never, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, being on call, would have had the opportunity to be so present to be part of a program like this. And so, and so within 48 hours, I was signed up, I was accepted, I was paid, and, um, and I was going to experience three, two, two really incredible trips and have a life-changing year in 2022 and meet some incredible people. That's awesome. So what was, um, what was your schedule like, you know, working, running a hospital during COVID? It, it, my schedule always was long, long days, long, you know, early meetings, late meetings, dinners, um, and then a full day in the middle of that. And, you know, sometimes events on the weekends as well, but also being on call 24 hours a day. So two o'clock in the morning, something happens in the hospital, you get a phone call, you deal with it. Sometimes you have to escalate it. Sometimes you have to go in. Um, and so I was used to being connected to the hospital 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The pandemic hit and, and it actually, I would say hit sooner than the first cases arriving. So our first cases in New York started to arrive in early March of 2020. In January, we started our on-site planning for what was going to be potentially experienced. What would the what would the pandemic look like? When were you guys When were you guys aware? You probably were one of the first people to become aware of what it was. We were learning about it um, towards the end of December, beginning of January of twenty, end of December twenty nineteen, beginning of January twenty twenty. Um, we weren't um, we weren't as concerned about what it was going to look like from a clinical care perspective, more so, you know, one of the things we went through every, every year, multiple times a year, was always planning for different types of events. And, and one of those events that come up every year is the flu. And the flu is a, a situation where it taxes hospital capacity on an annual basis. And you know it's coming. And so since we know about it, we always take out our plans, figure out where we're going to, where we're going to adjust our operations and be prepared for it. So we did that. And then we thought that this was going to look a little bit more like that during the December, January timeframe. Towards the end of January, we started to get reports from overseas that it was going to be much more significant than, than what was being uh, initially contemplated. So we started to host town halls. We started to understand what was going to be important for our team members to, to know about and what their main questions and concerns would be. And then um, by the middle of February, we were starting to anticipate that cases were going to arrive. And then uh, by March 4th, I think, we had our first admission to the hospital. And very quickly, it went from one to um, hundreds. And then when was, it's kind of a weird question to ask, but um, when was the first death that you saw there from, not that you saw at the hospital, but from COVID? Um, I don't remember the exact date. 
Um, was it in March or like did it take a while? It was March. It so was definitely March that um, people were passing away. And one of the things that, that I remember um, was very significantly, uh, when you're in a hospital, you know, you see on the TV shows all the, the codes, right? You always see when somebody, they call a code, the team rushes in. Well, that happens on average maybe once a day. At the peak, it was happening once every 37 minutes. And so you would hear that alert go off every 37. Now, sometimes it would batch, and you'd have, like, six codes in, in you know, 20 minutes, and sometimes you would have two hours where you didn't hear anything. Um, and so I would respond to those codes, not respond from a clinical practitioner standpoint because I'm not licensed to practice, but more from a leadership perspective and, and wanting to support the team be there with the team and understand how they were managing and, and handling these situations and also to understand how the patients were doing. And so I, I happened to have been present multiple times, sadly, when people hadn't, hadn't made it, um, hadn't survived. But the team worked heroically and worked you know, flawlessly from a clinical practice perspective. Um, and it was tough on them because it would happen as frequently as multiple times a shift for somebody who sometimes wouldn't deal with that for weeks or months and and they were experiencing loss that's got to be it's gonna be so nuts to be one of the surgeons or just one of the doctors in there all the time so so what do you do then how do you so you said you respond to help them not not to help to be them, there to, to be, be there, there but yeah. to support them um what does that look like from like a procedure standpoint do you know what I mean? Am I saying uh, I that stay, right? I stay out of the way. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's the number one thing. That probably makes sense. Um, you know, when when there's a, a code that's called, the there's a very specific protocol for how people will respond, uh, which people in the hospital respond. There's a team of people that specifically that's their role. And then if there are multiple codes, there's other backup systems for that to happen. And, um, and that would happen, you know, as I mentioned, multiple times. I would respond to the location. And usually there were more people at the location than actually helping the patient because the, they, they weren't needed in the actual clinical care, but they were there for additional backup. And so that would give me an opportunity to engage with them. And then depending on the outcome, um, it didn't matter if it was positive or negative, I would always try to connect with the team as well. Support them if it didn't go well and support them if it did and understand in all situations what can I and the leadership team of the hospital be doing to make sure that they have the support that they needed to, to, to address the next one better if it was possible or just from them, from their standpoint, emotionally. And then did you notice, um, well, my view, I don't know if it's accurate or not, probably not, but um, did you notice like any difference really – I don't want to say the type of person, but the demographics of people that are coming in with it sick. Because um, from my understanding, again, super ignorant on my part, it was just fat older people. They were really, like, dying. Uh, it was um, overweight people with comorbidities and um, uh, minorities. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I, did, I didn't know that part. But um, Definitely in the first wave. Um, I don't remember as many of the statistics in the second and third wave. And I can't answer for you whether or not it was more to do with something related to the ethnicity or the proximity and and situation where the COVID was spreading. Okay, okay, and and was that like with most hospitals or your hospital in particular? It was for a lot of hospitals, specifically New York City. And New York City, as as you may know, is is one of the most diverse parts of the country. And so when you talk about diversity, <laughs> and you talk about New York City and New York City being heavily impacted, they're kind of they go one and the same, and it. And it's, uh, 
it, it did highlight some differences in the type of care that's available for people, though. That's pretty interesting. And, you know, when you think about how COVID spread also, right, and, and uh, you know, we were talking before a little bit about masks, but um, so much of the city relies on public transportation. And so if, you know, close confines, tight quarters, whether it's buses, trains, tightly packed buildings, a lot of people traveling in, in, uh, in the city in different ways. And so it is possible that would, that had a large portion of, uh, of to do with the spread. Although that's the first set of the wave. Um, after that, it went, it went global. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so obviously I think I've said on here every time is just how much I, I am the anti-mask. Um, did you say that you, you have to wear a mask again on public transportation in, in New York. York? In New York, yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, we're, yeah, we're we're here today at the beginning of May. So three weeks ago, maybe there was the the re- reversal of the mandate. I'm so excited about flying this For, this, this upcoming week. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna wear one, which is so simple and dumb. But I, I, I honestly, I'm so excited about it. Yeah. So the, the, I think the day that 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 reversal of the mandate came out. Either that day or the day after, New York State came out with a revised policy that in New York, you still must wear a, a mask in public transportation, on trains, and in the airports. And the data has proven that that ad hasn't made a difference. Basically, is that fair to say? I don't know about the data specifically. I could tell you my interpretation of what I see. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. Uh, so. I mean, if you think about the, the wave that we went through in December and January, just of this, this past 2021 into 2022, a million and a half New Yorkers got COVID and there was a mask mandate. And a very highly vaccinated area. And a very highly vaccinated percentage. Now, while there was a high positivity rate of people, people with COVID, there wasn't a very high, positive, uh, very high need for hospital services. And there also wasn't a very high result in mortality. That's a great and so, sign. And so to, to where you're going about with the masks, I do wonder what is the value of the masks in public transportation or any other location if you look across the country and you see the incidences of COVID positive results and everybody in those locations wearing masks during those times. And then you, you had another interesting point too um, when we were talking before which I completely forgot about. When COVID first came out, the concern was keeping hospital beds open. Yes. And then it changed to like, you know, stopping the spread you know, deaths. And then it went right. the spread. Flattening the curve. Then it went flattening the curve and, you know, two weeks till normal. And the, the narrative just kept changing. How did you, how did you notice that um, or experience that working in the hospital? Yeah. It, um, I can't tell you the exact moment when it changed, when I noticed that it changed, but it, it, it was it was something where it, it, it kind of hit me, where I was paying very close attention to the differences of what was happening at different points in time. So, as you said, we were talking about the reason for the shutdown that was communicated in, uh, in the beginning of March 2020 was to create enough capacity for hospitals to be able to take care of people who are sick. It wasn't to stop the spread of the infection. And then um, that was done and the hospitals got overcrowded, managed, 
incredibly well, by the way. They were done. They were the people. Everybody that needed care got care, and that's one of the things that I, I would say we should be very proud of in our country and and specifically in New York. Um, and then everything started to slow down a little bit by May. And then we had the Black Lives Matter movement, and people took to the streets. Was that was that um, those George Floyd, right? Yes, it was May. Yeah, that was May. That was such a crazy fucking year. It was, and that that's only the second thing, right? Because then later on that year we had, we had, um, where I'm going with the Black Lives Matter movement yeah, yeah. is that you had large gatherings of people in the streets. Right, right, and, yeah. And and as a, a leader of a hospital, I prepared the team and I said, listen, if this thing is going to spread like it did the first wave, we better be prepared for a really busy summer, right? Because all these people are gathered again in close proximity and. You know, not everybody was wearing masks. And it was interesting because I think that's the moment where I started to question, how was this spreading? Because we didn't see another influx of people like we had in the first wave. And so I started to think, is this really spreading the way we think it's spreading? How is, you know, and when we, when we were getting less busy in New York, other parts of the country were increasing, right? And, and so I was trying to pay attention to those dynamics. And then we go through the summer, maybe the second, maybe August, starts to climb a little bit, goes back down. And then you get into the presidential election timeline. And again, large gatherings of people. Now you got, you got both sides, both parties, right, right. large groups gathering, and um, some masked, some not, but again, in, in large groups. And I said again to the team, let's be ready. Let's be prepared. We're going to start to see another influx. And it didn't start to happen until Thanksgiving that year. Between Halloween and Thanksgiving, that next wave really started to, to increase in New York. Now, this is the New York timeline. And that really became our second wave. And so somewhere in between the Black Lives Matter movement and the presidential election campaigning, I really started to think something's not adding up. It's not connecting between positivity rates and hospitalizations. Right. Which is, which is really interesting to hear. And then, um, I don't know if this is true or not. You could actually probably tell me, but that there was, like, incentives. Did I ask you this in Minnesota? That, like, the hospitals got more money if somebody died and it was a COVID death or something? So there, there, was, a, um, there was a difference in reimbursement yeah. based, off of, based off of the dynamics of what somebody coded as. Um, and... Uh, I guess yes, there was a uh, originally a difference. I don't know the amount. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. didn't look at, um, specifically at the finances during that time. What was most important to me was the appropriate, accurate recording of somebody's condition, um, and I think that we, it, it, where I was working, really valued that more than anything else. Nice. Do you think? Because um, I, I think somewhere in California said that I'm pretty sure I, I should double check this that like they had. Um, you know, inaccurate data, basically, like that they had let out saying that there was way more deaths of COVID initially than, than there was. I don't know if it, that could be like a natural human thing. If I'm a doctor and I'm hearing about this thing all the time. I might naturally assume that if he had it, that's what caused it. Mm-hmm. Is that, cause I have, again, I know not how none of this works. Yeah. Um, is that a realistic possibility? I think, I think there's a bunch of different dynamics to consider in this, in this portion of, um, our look back for COVID, right? When you're in the middle of it, or the it's happening, 
and you've never been through it before. And everybody, as you said before, you know, when you, you referenced the surgeon, doctors, right. all hands on deck, right? Everybody is doing absolutely everything possible to make sure that the community is cared for, for every person who comes through that door. And people who are working in the healthcare environment are doing whatever jobs possible to, to, make, um, to make sure that the hospitals can function. I think when we were learning about a new virus, right, something that hasn't happened, you know, a situation that hasn't happened in, in 100 years in our time, right, so basically nobody that's working in healthcare today lived through one and is still working in healthcare today to, to do, you know, the last one from the, 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 the flu of 1918. Um, I think when you don't know enough about the medicine of this specific virus, people died. And if they had tested positive, and by the way, if they were brought in and they were already deceased and they tested positive, it was nearly impossible to, deter to determine if it was something other than COVID. Yeah, George Floyd was originally like labeled a COVID death. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah he was like originally labeled a COVID death. And then obviously they went back and, and changed that. But I remember being like, all right, this is kind of weird. Yeah, I, you know, how do you distinguish if somebody died of a heart attack or if somebody died of COVID if they died in their home and they were brought in by an ambulance, you know, at that point in time when you're in the middle of, in the middle of a pandemic where all you see is COVID deaths and you see them happening in front of you, it's easy to assume and it's logical to assume that that's what's killing everybody. Right. And so, um, you know, I don't think that there was any malice in, I, I in can the imagine, healthcare industry. I can imagine that being a natural, like, it's just how you're thinking and labeling it that way like mm -hmm. I, would, I would probably do that um man obviously that's what you're seeing every day working in in matching icus and and so where would you spend how does that work like how does a, a hospital ceo's day work during a pandemic or during, during a, pa <laughs> yeah, a little bit of both i guess um it's a lot of hours there a lot of hours there and it was a it's an in-between role for a place where I was, which was an organization of multiple hospitals, where it's um, managing what's happening on the day to day in the hospital and keeping keeping a structure and tabs and culture and um, and engagement and the quality focused on while also understanding the information that's being relayed to you from your organization and then relaying back the relevant information so that the organization can function. So I would spend a, uh, a large portion of my time uh, understanding what was happening throughout the hospital, understanding the dynamics. You know, one of the things that was, that was critical, um, but our systems weren't set up for it, was tracking and trending the information. So there was no electronic way when, this, when the pandemic started to know how many people we had with COVID and where they were. Really? And it sounds it sounds kind of ludicrous, right? But, yeah, yeah. But it started with us tracking on a whiteboard, then moving to Excel, and then moving to a, a database as the volume grew, and it, and it grew very, very quickly. So the first thing was, you know, understanding who was there and where. Second thing was managing them, obviously. Like, no. Uh, from my perspective, it was, do we have enough people? Do we have the right locations of care? And uh, preparing them in advance. And so I would spend a lot of my time on that. And then it was walking through the hospital and being there for the team. And, and I, I did it both physically and virtually, right? And, and one of the ways was going to a unit. I remember going to the very first ICU where the first COVID patient was, and, and everybody was scared, right? 
Everybody felt uncertain. We walked into the ICU and we had on our mask, a regular procedure mask, same thing that the people are still wearing, right, right. you know, in some parts of the country and some on planes. And, um, and the team, you know, all gathered around us and they said, why is this mask enough? You know, we've got COVID here. When you turn on the news, you see China and you see Italy and you see people in full hazmat suits. Why should we trust that this mask is enough? The mask that can't stop you from smelling a fart. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so it's going to stop. It's going to stop COVID. And so, you know, as a leader um, in the ICU, in that moment, my answer to them was because I'm wearing the same thing you are. And you're going to have access to the exact same information and the exact same um, equipment that I have, if not better. And right now, this is what we have, and this is the best of the information that's being provided to us. And even then, there was disagreements between the WHO and the CDC, but we were going to go through it together. And then I took that, and and I realized I couldn't be in all, you know, twenty-something units all day, every day, interacting individually with everybody. And I started to build a social media presence on top of what I had already started to build. But now, that became a platform for me to virtually be there with the team and communicate with them and for them to have a sense of confidence and trust that the information they were getting was coming directly from me and it was a two-way street. And so I started opening them, um, opening up questions for them to answer, uh, sorry, for me to answer for them ongoing. And I would do it at midnight on a Saturday, I would do it whatever time I could fit it in in between managing the hospital with the team, with the administrative team, um, and I started having a two-way conversation. It gave me the best line of sight to where the concerns were in the hospital. It gave me the best information. This is the social media? Social media side, yeah. It gave me, it was really the most powerful thing that I could have done was connect with the team through social media in order to anticipate their needs. Right away, I was getting questions like, can we shower before going home? I'm concerned about taking this home to my family. No problem. We closed the gym. We had built a gym a couple of years prior to that. Close the gym. Showers are available to you. Feel free to use them. You can't use the gym equipment, but you can use the shower. Some people wanted scrubs. We got the scrub machine, you know, parked outside of their unit for them, and they were able to change their clothes. And these are people who didn't typically change their clothes before going to the hospital. And, and there were many other requests that would come in, and we would manage them, and we would handle them, and we would we would take care of them. And um, and it became really a way where I felt the entire anxiety in the hospital start to decline. People, yeah, people just want to be heard, mm-hmm. especially going through and, some anxiety and, like that where there's uncertainty everywhere. And in addition to hearing, it was delivering on the things that we were able to deliver on and commit to them so that they knew that they were heard. It wasn't just, yeah, you yeah. know, oh, yeah, yeah, we hear you. We're going to take care of this. Uh, you know, No, this is important to you. We understand the risk of the area that you're in, and we're going to do something about it. That, that had to be um, – do you know if any other hospitals were doing stuff like that? I don't know any other leader that's that, used social media huge. the way that I have. This could be a huge win for you. It um, was, it was, you know, I, the only way that I could say it probably was is not for me, but for all of us, but because the followers went up, men, many members of the community found us and started to support us with different ways to either promote health, promote wellness, or, um, or, you know, support, show signs, send messages that we, I was reposting for them. Uh, we wound up on some good news. We wound up on tanks. Good news. Wound up on a whole bunch of different um, 
different places where, you know, there was a moment at the peak in, in uh, April of 2020 where I made a video. We had just celebrated the first person to leave the hospital as a survivor of COVID. And I, uh, yeah. and I noticed That's that pretty cool. somewhere along the way in those, those first six weeks or so, nobody was talking about positivity. Nobody was talking about survival. Everything you heard about was concerned about, about mortality. If you got COVID, it was the end, right? And so we, um, we clapped out a patient. We called it a, a team home. We, we would call it over the loudspeaker. Whoever was available and, and free and, and you know, in between shifts or on a break, they'd come down to the lobby. And as the patient left, everybody would applaud and cheer. And something was happening in that moment. When I looked around, I saw the team wasn't just clapping for that person who they were really proud of going home. They were clapping for them. They were clapping for society. They were clapping for the fact that we were going to win, right? We were going to beat the virus, and we were going to be able to take care of this, and there was light at the end of the tunnel. And so I, I, I recorded it real quick, and I posted it to social media, and then it just it went, it went viral. And... Um, you know, tens of millions of views and different and different people who reposted it. And and everybody suddenly I felt, you know, beyond the hospital, realized that there is hope. And uh, and I can I can tell you that that was a day where the dynamic changed and the power of social media allowed that to happen. But you know, I'm always negative on social media, not like I'm posting negative. But I, I'm not usually a big fan of it, but that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I um that made me try to think of a, a new way maybe I can do something with work. Um, and all, all of what I've built around social media for, for work initially was, it was about positivity. And, I, and one of the things I recognized was there was a lot more positive interaction on, on my account than a lot of other ones that you see. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you get what you give. Yeah. So, um, so as that happened, like, what was it like to go, not, not to jump, too far ahead but what was it like going from you know having some of these doctors and surgeons working around the clock with you to i know not all of them got the the vaccine and we were saying you know probably the shittiest part was having to let some of those guys go well yeah. I, can you kind of give your personal views on on not not the hospital's views but your personal views on that yeah it's um it's a difficult situation the uh you know, when you talk about the vaccine and, and uh, you know, if you continue that timeline from the presidential election, just a couple weeks after that, the vaccines came out. And, mm -hmm. and I felt, I was telling you before, I felt such a relief the moment that I got vaccinated. Yeah, tell us, this, this is actually pretty funny. So, um, you know, if you, if you think, and we'll get back to your question, if you think yeah. about the timeline of things not making sense in some ways, um, I am a believer in the vaccine. The data proves that the, the, and I'll just start with this, that you're less likely to die from COVID, five times less likely to die from COVID if you are vaccinated and you get COVID and you're one of the people that it affects and it grabs hold of. Um, so I do believe in it. I'll say though that I remember I remember, you know, my lens was the hospital where the sickest people with COVID were, right? So you, go, you went home, you watched the news, everything about COVID was, you know, was bad. And then I came to the hospital and, and I saw some of the worst of the entire world. And 
Um, and so when the vaccine came out, I mean, number one, the day that it happened was, was incredible. And then, and then the day that I got the shot, um, I just felt great. I was like, now I'm suddenly protected. Things are going to start to change. And then I, um, you know, I went home. I had a couple of, you know, uh, reactions from it for, for a couple of days. And then after that, I was like, okay, we're good. We can take the mask off now. And then uh, we weren't allowed to take the mask off, right? And the reason was, well, you, you know, you, you got to wait three weeks for your second shot. Or you have to wait four weeks for your, your, your second shot. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll wait the three weeks or the four weeks. And then I get the shot three or four weeks later. I go through my next two days worth of, you know, not feeling well. I come out of it, and I'm like, all right, we're good. I can take off the mask, right? And then they're like, no, 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 nope. 14 days after, that's when you're actually fully vaccinated. I was like, all right, all right, 14 more days. I could do 14 more days, right? And then 14 more days go, and I'm like, I'm watching more and more people get vaccinated. I'm feeling good. We're going to get past this. And after that timeline, I'm like, great, let's take off the masks. And like, no, 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 you got to put that back on. And I'm like, well, why do I have to put the mask back on? We're, we're all vaccinated here. No, no, no. So-and-so may not be able to get the shot and you have to protect them. And I was like, well, what's the benefit then that every individual will get to experience for having been vaccinated if they don't get to gain some part of their normal life back? And, um, and then more and more people get vaccinated and the narrative changed again, right? It was no longer about get vaccinated. It was get vaccinated. Now get vaccinated for your neighbor. Right. Right. Then it was get a booster. Then it was get another booster. Yeah. And somewhere in between that, by the way, we were all liberated from the masks. Right. Right. right? Because I think in May of, of that year, 2021, it was everybody could take off the masks. And then by July, there was another wave and another peak of, of COVID. Um, but the question was, and I, and I don't have the answer to this, but because I haven't looked at the statistics, but what was the impact on the healthcare system? Meaning, when those, that last wave happened, not last, because it still keeps going, but when those waves are happening, is there enough hospital capacity to take care of the people who are ill? And if there's enough hospital capacity to take care of the people when they're ill, well, that's what the health system is there for. Right. And if that's happening when people are unmasked, then, then when do we get to the sense of this is going to be our cycle and hospitals are going to take care of people when they're unwell and they're going to be able to take care of the people who, who have things that are not COVID-related and still have the capacity to do so? Why do you think, why do you think the public is so easily forgetful? Like, like the, do you know what I mean? Like, it'll be like, this is the thing. People will be shouting it on a rooftop, and then the next week they completely forget it. And they, they completely forget what they were shouting, and then, and then they just end up by the end of the year, like, in a completely different place and ignoring the fact that the, that's just, like, a human trait, and I don't understand it. And it's so frustrating to me watching. It's, it's an interesting dynamic, right? And, and so is some of it just based off of what we're absorbing around us? Is it, you know... You know, is it the influences that we have? Is it what we're, we're following on social media? Is it the media? Is it what's in the news? Is it, you know, there are so many questions about it, but you're, I, I have the same observation you do, which is when there's something very big in the news, everybody's, everybody's focused on it. 
Everybody has an opinion about everything. Like, and then it changes, and everybody stops talking about the last thing. Right. right like, like the, <clears throat> the Russia-Ukraine thing. Like everybody was giving their opinion on it and all that. Like they had studied either of the countries or knew anything about what was going on. And, and I'm chose not saying a side. I do. Yeah, yeah, and chose a side. And they got mad at others for not choosing their side that they don't even know anything about. Again, I don't know anything about it, but I'm open that I don't know anything about it. Right. So if, if right. I talk to like a professor that studied Russian, okay, cool, teach me about their interactions. I taught history. I, didn't, I don't know anything about Russian-Ukraine interactions, relations. I know Ukraine wasn't let in NATO. That's probably not a great sign. Like I, that's that's about the extent of my understanding of 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 their relations. And then, it, like when that happened, is like when they, I feel like when the the COVID ended, and then like for whatever reason, and then what, what's the new thing? Oh, now the now the abortion, right? You and know, and and people aren't really talking about Ukraine anymore. Yeah, yeah. Russia but there's Ukraine's still a war done. going on. Right, right, right. Right, and it's still very real for the people who are there. Very real. It's probably worse because it, it's still going, and it, I can. I've never been in war, thankfully, but I can only imagine it only gets worse as time goes on. I don't imagine war gets better. Um, I, I would imagine the same. I haven't either. So I, so I can just that, and then you were you actually just told me I didn't even know because again, just a distraction. The abortion leak was on the same day with the Pfizer. Would Pfizer release some documents being unfavorable? I, I, I had right? read that somewhere. I didn't read the Pfizer release, but I, will, I, I did read one, one place that, the, uh, that those two things happened around the same day. Again, I don't believe in coincidences. So, like, to me, you know, if, if there's somebody wagging the dog, it's probably the big pharmaceutical companies. I, I would imagine that they have to be some of the most influential lobbyists probably in the world. It would seem so based off of the last couple of years. Right, right. Yeah, they're, they're doing pretty well with the COVID scare and push and, and all yeah. that. And, and I saw somewhere else that they, they also sponsor a lot of what we watch on TV. Right? Oh, yeah, all the time. And from being in health insurance, if you see a prescription on TV, that's like a $1,000 prescription. <laughs> like, like, those are not prescriptions the insurance companies love. <laughs> if you see a prescription on a TV, I, how, how do you see... Did you see pharmaceutical companies interfering with the hospital at all or anything like no, that? No, I, not fr from my seat. I couldn't tell any of that, um, any of that interaction. The the closest that I can tell from a relationship was just, you know, everything you everybody saw for Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson for the vaccines. Okay, that's at least good to know. But I, I just have to imagine that. And then. Um, and you want to kind of tell the story about how you got into the CEO role, like your kind of long, winding journey to get to where you're at? Sure. Um, so I didn't anticipate that I'd have a life in healthcare. Um, I actually grew up in, uh, in a family that had a family business. It was an electrical supply store and everything that you can envision inside your walls and outside your walls for lighting a house, electrifying a house, building a building from the inside of, uh, from the electrical components. And uh, my great-grandfather started it. It was in East New York, Brooklyn, Brownsville area. And uh, I spent all of my childhood spending my Saturdays there, going to work with my father. All the, all the uh, school breaks were there. All the summers were spent there. And, you know, we always had this goal. I'd, I'd be the fourth generation to take it over. And I was always very excited about it. And I was actually so confident that I was going to take over this family business that I remember when I was in high school, I told my parents, you know, I'm not going to go to college. 
And, you know, in, and in, in my neighborhood, that wasn't heard of, right? Everybody goes to college. You go to high school, you go to college, and then, you know, you do what you're going to do next. And, I was, and my parents were like, why aren't you going to go to college? And I said, why would I? You know, it's, it's just four years in between me going to take over the business, which, you know, I could just jump right into it and I have, four, have a four-year head start. And they, um, you know, I look back and I thankfully thank them to say, you know, they, they, they were like, no, you're going to have a prerequisite to take over the failing business, and that's you're going to college. Go get a degree, and, um, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, let you, we'll let you get involved with the business. I said, all right. So I, I went, and I did everything possible to get out as quickly as possible. So I went there with uh, college credits that I earned in high school. I went to college, and, you know, in between those breaks when you, can't, when you come home, I, uh, I did summer classes, I did intercession classes, and I just did whatever I could to get out. And so I finished in three years. Very nice. And uh, in that last session, that last semester when I was there, um, wrapping up, fully prepared to go and get into the family business, I get a call from my dad when, when I was up there, and, and he's like, hey, look, the business is gone. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The business is gone. And, and the timeline is... Um, it was in the 90s, and that's when the Home Depots of the world came out and crushed all the mom and pop. You know, you heard about it about hardware stores, but this is, you know, effectively an electrical hardware store. And, uh, and they just crushed. They undercut the pricing on everything that uh, my dad was able to, to buy things for from his distributors. And so they just absolutely wiped out the, the industry. And uh, I had to figure out what to do with my life. And so here I am at the end of my third year of co- college, which I'm wrapping up. I'm graduating, and I felt like I needed to buy myself some more time. So I enrolled in an MBA program. Nice. I was like, let me just go back to school, right? Yeah, and yeah. so I had liked— Where did you go to school on the side note? I went to the University of Rhode Island as okay. an undergrad, and then I enrolled at Hofstra University as a, uh, an MBA student. Yeah, yeah so, so in New York. In New York. How um, far is— um, I should know it, but I don't. How far is Rhode Island from from like Long Island? It's like a three-hour drive. Okay, not bad. Yeah, not bad at all. Two hundred miles, maybe. Yeah, it's not bad. It's yeah. it's nice to get away for a little bit. Yeah, and it's a beautiful area up there. I've yeah. never been. That's nice, nice. Especially the Newport area and and the University of Rhode Island is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit before that, but it's it's a nice campus. Okay. And so, uh, so I, I I enjoyed the three years there, but I was also looking forward to getting into the the real world and uh and when i was there i started to have this interest in finance stock market was booming back then right and everybody was talking stocks and 90s was yeah you had the you had the um the internet bubble right and so uh i was paying a lot of attention to that in my business classes and and so i figured let me go to hofstra and, and study finance and then after my first year being a full-time student there i figured now's the time to start looking for internships let me get some you know, my foot in the door, see what I like, what I don't like. Now, one of the things that I do is I'm a professor at Hofstra University, and I... I ad- oh, that's I, what you teach. Yeah, okay. I advise interns, and one of the things I tell them is that is the best time in your life to get out there and to try something, basically with no, you know, no commitment, and, and honestly try the things that, you know, either scare you or you're uncertain about, and use that as the time to figure out what you don't like which is you know, probably more important than figuring out the things that you do like, right? Because you don't want to have a life that you committed to in a career that you're just not going to be happy and fulfilled in. And so, uh, so I spent three days on Wall Street. <laughs> 
And, um, and I just felt like there was something about it that wasn't uh, the right fit for me. And um, it wasn't the right time in my life to be on Wall Street. And as much as I enjoyed finance in that regard, it just maybe it was the person I was paired with. I don't know. But, um, but at that same time, I had an opportunity to intern at the organization that I ultimately worked at. And, um, and so I thanked the people at, at Wall Street, and I went and I worked at the hospital setting. And what stood out to me there in a different way was, you know, I was in a, a finance office seven miles away from the closest hospital. And the amount of caring and compassion that the people in finance had there for the work they did, having an impact on the care at the bedside, you know, just spoke to me. It spoke to me, you know, in yeah, my it's heart. Not, and it's not what I would assume about the finance guys of a hospital caring about the patient. That's, that's no. great to hear. They, every single number that, you know, that, it was an incredible summary because every single number and, and, and analysis that I worked on was filled with an education of them explaining to me how that number on the page impacted the care that was being provided then and how the work we did would impact the care going into the future. So, so I stayed at the end of the internship. I was offered a job as an analyst worked in, in that office for nine years in different roles, doing financial planning and budgeting and uh, capital planning, and then uh, had the opportunity to move over to a hospital as the CFO, and uh, a billion-dollar hospital. And, um, and I was like, this can't be real life, right? Like, yeah, how, how am I having amazing. this opportunity? And it was in a really exciting time in this hospital's history. And then, uh, so I went and I did that. And then uh, a couple of years after being there, my boss at the hospital, the executive director, hospital president, hospital CEO, whatever you want to call the title, um, asked me to go to Dartmouth College to join a program that was just being developed for hospital leaders. And it was, it was a new program that was created based off of President Obama's campaign in 2008, I guess. And, uh, and somebody realized through his campaigning that the healthcare system was so broken that the only thing that was going to fix it was to pr put a new program together and then bring a group of leaders together to learn this new program and then go out into the field and impl implement it. And so I was very fortunate to be one of 50 people that went into oh, this no program shit. at Dartmouth, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it brought together the best of Tuck, uh, the business school, and the Geisel School of Medicine, and TDI, the Dartmouth Institute, so that um, we would learn from the best minds, analyzing really what was the foundation for what President Obama was talking about during his campaign and then go out there and do something about it. And then by the time I was done with that program, my, my boss called me in and said, listen, you seem like a really frustrated finance person. And I was like, what do you mean by that? She's like, you're really good at reporting out on the numbers, but you seem to want to do something about what influences those, those numbers. So why don't you try being the head of operations for the hospital? And so I went back, I talked to my mentor, and I thought about it and with some support and and guidance, I, I, uh, I went down that road. It was a crossroad in my life. Do you leave something that you're, you know, you're good at and you feel comfortable in, or do you take the risk? Yeah, because you just got like you're one of the 50 elite people. So so leaving that has got to be a, it's a big risk. Yeah, and so I was, um, I, I was I was thankful for the support. And as you don't believe in coincidences, I was learning at that point in time in my career. You got to listen to those around you. Follow their nudging of you know what they see in you and what your potential could be, and then and then trust them in what they think you could do and and uh, and in their support for you. And so I did that. I made the transition to operations. I partnered with the chief medical officer and the chief nursing officer, and the three of us worked. At, you know, I'll say 
till the day I left, we worked as a triad, right, with the rest of the, the administrative team. But um, a year after being the head of operations, I then became uh, what was what was called a, like a hot, slightly higher level. And then the next year, I was I was promoted to be the hospital executive director or or president. And so I did that for about six and a half years, um, and two of them were through a pandemic. Yeah, yeah but a, what a wild road. <laughs> so so. I wanted to hear more about kind of that, the Obamacare essentially, because um, that's just super interesting to me because what I do for work, you know what I mean? Like we're the exact direct competition, not to get into specifics, but to Obamacare. Um, so I almost benefit from it being so expensive, Well, not almost, I benefit from it being so expensive because it makes it easier for me to sell my plan. Um, and, and just the creation of it, right? Yeah, just yeah. the creation of that plan created that entire market. It, it, yeah, it's right, it's which didn't exist. Right, it, it didn't exist when I when I was going into this program. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the whole the whole thing is wild. Um, so yeah, so the, definitely no coincidence there because I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for that um, for that exact thing. So you actually played a role in that, which is very interesting. What do you? So what did you guys do in that meeting? Did you talk about like implementing it, the finances of it, like? So it less it was less a meeting and more of a college program right at the graduate level it was um, a lot of science data analytics and then business courses all brought together I don't want to say it was because it still exists and and people can still look up the masters of healthcare delivery science at Dartmouth College um, so you take all of those components together and so think of your your standard MBA program right from a, from a business school perspective how do you analyze a business plan? How do you do projections? How do you study a market? How do you um, uh, understand efficiency and, and operations, right? All of that side of, side of it. Then you have the, the science side of it. How do you, you know, we were talking a lot about, you know, some of our, our feelings about masks and whether or not they're effective. Well, how do you structure a data study? You know, an unbiased data study, either prospective or retrospective, to understand the information to make a informed decision so that, you know, one of the things that, that we've lived through is a, a tremendous number of people disagreeing with one another over the last couple of years. Some of it's based on feel. Some of it's based off of, you know, Facebook posts and what, you know, someone's aunt or cousin is telling them to believe. And some of it is based off of science. So then when you get to the science side of it, you know, how do you understand it? What was the structure of that? And then how do you interpret it? And then, and then you can couple that with the, um, with the business side of things and affect change. And so, uh, you know, when, when you look at those components, it was specifically designed in this program to challenge the way the U.S. healthcare system is designed so that we can effectuate change in how it needs to be, de how it needs to be changed today to implement the future outcomes. You know, one of the things that, that shows up time and time again in these studies is is that the amount of money we spend in this country on the end of life care for people is so like right right at the end like hospice type stuff and pre-hospice right okay. the last six months of somebody's life is where they spend the vast majority of the medicare dollars okay that makes sense right because we in our society we, we have this culture of believing that longer life is better than quality of life i'm so opposed to that I'm so opposed to that. To what I just said? Or no, to no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I agree with what you said. Yeah, yeah. I'm just opposed to that thought. To the concept. Yeah. 
and as am I, right? And so some of this program was was about teaching that. But the question is, how do you, you know, how do you start to change some of that dynamic? And um, and while simultaneously, I believe creating a structure of preventative care and healthy living to inspire people to make the right choices and make it easy for them to make the right choices so that they don't need to have as many care uh, care delivery systems involved in their care at their end of their life. Yeah, I feel like our, our whole healthcare system is all reactive instead of proactive. Yes. Right. And, and my view with COVID was the reason, again, I didn't work in a hospital. I don't, I don't really know shit about it. And I understood that. But what I thought was weird was they were telling everybody to stay inside and not get sunlight, which increases your vitamin D and your immune system. And there was no like exercise. And then it was like, all right, this is really affecting people that are overweight. Why aren't we telling them exercise and eat better? And get outside. Yeah, and get outside and go for a jog. And mm-hmm. the, that to me, and I was like, all right, so they don't really want to make you healthy. There's, and God knows what the inflation and the other stuff is going to come from those two years of just lost business and productivity and well, think about, you know, there was a night I was at the, the dinner table um, with my family. It was in January of this year, 2022. The numbers in New York are, are starting to really climb, you know, very high. And uh, tests were nowhere to be found, right? The home tests were nowhere to be found. And the schools started saying, we're going to, we got some tests. Every child gets to pick up one, right? And the families have to go and pick it up. And everything that you saw on the news was, Cases are going up. We're going to give you tests. Well, how is that treatment? How is taking a test to know whether or not you have COVID or not treatment? And I feel like, you know, you're talking about the news a little bit before. Is that a little smoke and mirrors right. for, you know, making you believe that you're doing something, right? What's the value add in doing it? Now, clearly, somebody has COVID and they stay home and they don't spread it. Well, that's, that's a benefit for it. But what's the actual treatment for COVID? What is the treatment of COVID? Stay at home. Stay at home. <laughs> Stay at home and, and rest. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I, I can't tell you more than okay. that. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people you could talk to that, that will get you that yeah, information. Yeah. They'll give you recommendations. And, and for different people, I believe different things work. For all my friends that have had it, I have a guy on my team. Um, I think I've referenced this before in some of these podcasts, but I have a guy on my team. Um, that's had, I'd laugh, it's not funny, but it, it's, he laughs about it too. He's had, I think now, four heart attacks. He had three, he just had another heart thing happen the other day. He smokes about a pack a day still. Um, bigger guy, he got COVID. Or like there was a period where like most of my office got COVID and I called him and said, do you have a will together? Like you are who this kills. And he was fine. Mm-hmm. Every single, I mean, again, I'm obviously you saw terrible things but everybody i knew that got it other than one person who actually is funny said the minority thing he he's a minority um was fine they just slept i never got tested positive for it i think i had it once and i was just tired i was just really tired for like two or three days mm-hmm. um and then i felt good yeah i, I um you never got tested right and so no i never got tested you know i i i, I was like everybody i'm around has it i feel sleepy it could just be my mind but my view is like from everybody i talked to that did get tested they weren't told anything or what to do i was like so why i'll, I'll just stay home take a nap every day and it worked for you yeah and yeah. it works for most people that that i know you know you take they take some tylenol they take some advil um 
to the best of my knowledge, I have not had COVID. I've had days where I felt like I had COVID. Um, uh, people in my house have had it and tested positive and had cold-like symptoms. Um, interestingly, I never got it from them, which which I find I find curious. Especially because you must have been around COVID all the time, nonstop. I, you know, face to face with it. Right. Face to face, and and look, we had you know in a very short amount of time. Um, the N95 masks that we were wearing, and and uh, while we had protective eye goggles, I never really wore them so much because I wasn't in that kind of a, a setting. But but face to face with it, and you know you wore it for your entire time that you were in the hospital, and um, and I felt safe with it. But I also I never got COVID. There were days I was so exhausted from just working so many long hours, you know, just constant, and and it's hard to describe the amount of emotional um, uh, connection to what you're doing and managing many different aspects of, of what's happening in, in any given moment. Um, and at some point in time, my body just shut down, and I thought I had COVID then, but I didn't. Um, there were days where I, I just couldn't lift my head off the pillow. What was your sleep, what was your sleep schedule like during the, the height of the pandemic? Three four hours. That's what, that's what I was maybe guess. you know there were there were times I'd round in the hospital and I'd go into my office and there was a couch there I'd never lay down, um, but I would sit down and I would I would just be tired and and there were plenty of videos of me in that moment where I would start answering questions on social media, and people would message me and they were like you need to get some rest you look terrible you need you need sleep you got to just you know take care of yourself and 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 there were moments where. You know, when you're sleep deprived for way too long, you get a little bit, um, uh, what's the right word for it? Irritable for me. Irritable. Yeah. I get super irritable. If I don't know. It's, like, it's like when you don't eat and you're hangry, right? And yeah, so, yeah. Um, after weeks of that, different people would would start to show that at different times. And, and I think one of the strengths of us as a team was we have a good enough relationship where when we saw that in somebody, we'd be like, hey, look, you just got to go home. You, you need to take a remote day. You need, you know, there were plenty of tools available, Zoom and Teams and other things that popped up that you were able to stay connected. But, you know, somebody just needed four extra hours. Yeah. yeah. And so we would cover each other and do that from time to time. But um, but I want to go back to something that you said, which is really important about about all of this. And it's a question really more than it is, uh, you know, a, a statement. But it's why isn't there as much involvement in the communication strategy around this virus for health and wellness activities and diet nutrition choices as there is around just getting the shot. Right. You know, how do we use this? Again, I'm the type of person who thinks about the lessons in what we go through. And, you know, my lesson that I took away was I wanted to be more present as a, as a father, as a husband, as, you know, as a, you know, for people and build, rebuild relationships with friends that, you know, hadn't, um, uh, maybe stayed as strong as they could have over the years. But the other thing is we should be giving people the recipe for success in life, a good quality of life, helping them promote their wellness, helping them to stay active, helping them to get outside, helping them to have the right mindset, right? All the things that you and I are, are really fortunate enough to be learning about in you know, yeah, the 365 yeah. program, right? That's the recipe for, for everybody that, you know, will, will really deliver success and a positive mindset and and respectable respectable ways for people to to grow old how do we how do we get i guess you're doing it with the social media stuff 
what I was going to say is, like, how do we get that happening? I guess we just have to do it. I hope it catches on. I don't think us relying on the government or somebody to just implement it that way is going to ever happen. Yeah, I think, you know, you start to go down a road of reimbursement before to organizations and their coding of, you know, of, of how people passed away with, with COVID. Or if they didn't pass away, they still was, there was still was coding opportunities. So if that could be done, how can the government start to incentivize all of us to live healthier lives? Or how can the, how can the government start to incentivize restaurants? to serve healthier foods. You know, one of the things I did when I was at the hospital was um, I changed the pricing in the cafeteria. I took the unhealthy foods, which, by the way, I love from time to time, so I'm not going to tell you that I don't love a chicken finger and a mozzarella stick. But I made that expensive or more expensive than a healthy salad. And so we lost money on our salads. We made a lot more money on the other food. But the incentive was, you know, for a lot of our team members who live on a budget, $5.99, $5.99, you can get your salad and a bottle of water, as opposed to $5.99 for your chicken fingers, your French fries, and a Coke. Do you think of how much more pep in their stuff they probably have for the rest of the day and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of a transition, right? At first, people were like, hey, why'd that go up in price? Well, you know, the salad's over here. You can choose the salad and, you know, yeah. I don't want a salad, right? And, and, then, right? and then over time, people would start to, start to choose the healthier options. You know, why can't we do that as a society? You know, and in 20 years, suddenly we're living different lives. You know, one of the things I think about in the future, right, we're going through this this very f- focused time on healthcare. I can't think of another time, at least that, that we've been alive, where so much attention has been on health or health care. Um, but we're living through a time. There's more obesity and you can't, they call it fat shaming now. Right. Like, again, I'm overweight right now, right? I know that. But, like... It would not be good to me if I lied to myself, right. told myself that that's healthy. You like, can be a beautiful person. Right. Right. And recognize that there's, you know, you can live a healthier lifestyle from a weight perspective. Right. And that, and, and what I've seen is that, you know, I, I saw this very quickly when I got to the hospital, when I started understanding from the, the physicians and the clinicians, some of the, the outcomes that weren't as good for patients. I'm like, what's the difference what drives a, diff- a, a better outcome in most people? And, and they said, your health and wellness and how you live your life before you need medical care. Right? So if you're a relatively healthy person and you go into a hospital, you have a better chance of having a, a speedier recovery and a better outcome during surgery if you're either having one or the other or both. And so you know, I went to the hospital. I was 40 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I immediately joined Weight Watchers because it was offered. It was a benefit. I lost 30 pounds. And that was 12 years ago. And while I may go up or down 10 pounds here and there, I have for 12 years kept off that, that 40 pounds. But the nice. crazy thing is I'm still considered obese, right? And Are you really? Yeah. Based on the, the BMI metrics. No shit. Yeah. And so I'm trying to get under that, that level. But I don't want to see mine then. <laughs> we may be in the same bracket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the same bracket. But the, um, but the goal should be that, you know, we promote health because what, what scares me about the future of, of healthcare is we're going through the Great Recession. Uh, re- I'm sorry, resignation. The recession's coming next. The recession the is coming. The recession's coming next, unfortunately, between inflation and... Uh, I, I, I think yeah, everybody and sees it coming and, and nobody wants to truly acknowledge it. But again, and I don't know if it's true or not. I was saying um, before, I heard from... Uh, 
I wish I could remember the name, but but this high level, you know, economist, which I think makes sense, with the Russia Ukraine thing, when we're every country sanctioning Russia. Again, I don't pretend to know what they should do, but with them doing that, the natural progression for the Russian farmer who provides most of the wheat in the world is not to grow as much wheat because they won't be able to sell it, and then their own crops will be cheaper in their own land. So there's going to be less wheat. Plus, prices are already going through the roof anyways for anything. I can't imagine that. That does not have a serious effect. I think they said today oil hit the highest it's ever been for home home heating oil. Um, not Maybe not highest it's ever been, but highest it's been in our recent times. And again, I learned this in um, my college classes. Oil is cheaper and easier to get now than it ever has been because of our technology. Interesting. People give like, we use this shortage term. But um, really interesting book. So the recession in 2008, when gas got so crazy prices, mm-hmm. I think it was 80% of that was um, stock market pushed up. Really? Yeah, because there there's um, in 95, the J. Aaron Gold Act or whatever that was, got rid of like the Glass-Steagall and um, commodity speculation, like there's no limit now. So like what happens is there's actually oil tankers going around <laughs> the oceans, just filled with barrels of oil to drive the price up. So cause most of it's usually actually like- So it looks like supply is down? Yeah, exactly. And so when we blame like, you know, like Ukraine and then gas went up, I went on the government side. Like I didn't rely on anybody else that, that we get, I forget the exact amount that we get from us, but from Russia, we get like 2% of our oil or something like that from Russia. Like it was like, there, there should have been no reason for that to go up. That's interesting because it, it sounds like we get most of our oil from them, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I literally went through and I counted the amount because you can go on the government site and it'll show you the country and the amount of barrels of oil we buy. Wow. So I went and averaged, I, I did like, I was so frustrated because I was like, I don't think we get that much from there. <laughs> and I was like, I think we get 60% of our oil from Texas, which we do. Um, or something like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, just like Texas alone. And I was that, like, that eliminates the entire argument. That's what I'm saying. Is, is I was like, there's no way that that's accurate. Like, and I went and checked. So we get a, we don't get six percent anymore. We from Texas, we get close to that though. But like American production is by far where we get the most of it. But and I went and like calculated, it, and Russia was like one of the smallest. And you know, went back and like averaged them, and then figured out I have it written down on my phone actually it's a two to three and a half percent it's not more than that though okay wow yeah Mike's Mike's confirming he just did, he just did oh, the yeah. research it it's wild though and but but the prices go up a dollar and a half and it's how, how can you and again so then where's that money going exactly right I think I think it's we don't want to admit because we were talking we were talking before it's politics they're going to say it's not inflation it's Russian force right so they have a boogeyman that they can point the finger at mm-hmm. and again I'm not saying Russia's not doing fucked up shit. I'm just saying, I, I don't know the politics of that, but I do know the politics of the oil, and that doesn't make sense. It's cheaper and easier, and we produce most of it in America. That's interesting. But you would never know that. Right. Um, I'm going to look that up after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'll send, I think I have it in my phone. I, um, I even send you, like, the link, the site to go to within government has. Okay. But it's, like, you, it's um, I Googled, like, barrels of oil or something. I don't remember, but I'll, I'll send it to you. It's the official, like, .gov. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just that happens all the time healthcare all that and again people are just so easily distracted hey make an opinion about this and get in fights yeah well the important stuff's going on and nobody pays attention right and so going, getting back to some of that important stuff you know you look at the great resignation and you look at an aging population and you forecast out the amount of need for medical services that 
we're all going to need as a society over the next 40, 60 years. There aren't going to be, in my opinion, enough places to receive that care if we don't change the trajectory of how we're living today so that less of that care will be needed in the future. Right? We're either going to have to build a, you know, a whole bunch more hospitals and hire many more clinicians and people to work in them who are leaving the field today right after living through two years of, in many ways, trauma. Like you did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not the first, right? Right, right, right. I'm, I haven't been the last. And so, you know, there's a movement that's going on where some people are just leaving the field completely. There are some people who are changing the setting in which they work, right? So if they worked in an ICU or they worked in a, in a medical surgical unit or an ER, they now want to go work in an outpatient practice, right? Normal hours and very few emergencies and a lot less intense. And so if you've got that dynamic taking place, what is the industry going to do to bring people back into it, right? To me, there was, there was a pride, there is a pride of working in a hospital when the, when the world needed you most, right? That's what, that's what the pandemic is for healthcare. It's the World Series, it's the Super Bowl, it's your 100-year you know, right. super event that you're going to go through that you never want to happen. But when it does happen, and it has to, has to be managed through from a clinical perspective or from a leadership perspective, it doesn't matter, that's your time, right? That's, that's like the quarterback at the so end of the game for it, yeah. saying, give me the ball, I'm going to go score a touchdown, right? That should have driven, in many ways, more people into the field of healthcare. There should have been such a positive force that we all experienced in that first wave that continued to this day should have continued to this day and would have made this the field that everybody would want to be in because healthcare workers saved humanity, right? That's what the message should have been. Instead, they were made to feel in many ways dismissed and, you know, just, you know, people to pick on for the, the vaccines and, and, um, and thankless for the work that they did tirelessly giving their lives, putting themselves at risk, putting their families at risk with so much uncertainty. And, um, and I fear that that situation over the last two years or a year and a half of it has created this, what's going to be a vacuum for healthcare workers into the future at a time when more and more people are going to need those services. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've, that'll be a billion dollar question for somebody to answer. Yeah. Is how do you incentivize them back? How do you incentivize them back? And how do you incentivize everybody in the country to live healthier? It's hard, right? That's hard. the problem. Is it's it's hard. It's not so much easier to, to eat that them. fried chicken, which I had today. Um, As did I. <laughs> it was delicious. It was delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, I don't regret it. But it's so much easier to do that, you know, and have a beer than than drink water in a salad. But yeah, to go find the fresh vegetables, to go find the, the ingredients. You know, it doesn't get delivered everywhere. Right, right, right. And if it does, you know, it's not always as nutritious as when it was when it was picked from the ground. And I want to have a farmer on here because I've been hearing, I've been reading all this stuff about like soil lately. Basically, like our plants, even like when we do eat healthy, are not what they used to be. Interesting. Because uh, the nutrients, we've just been destroying the ground. Like this mass farming, like... So the plant is still lettuce, you know, lettuce or carrots or whatever, but it used to have so much more nutrients and like a lot of them are like not even there in the soil anymore. I, I hadn't heard that, but I did hear 
that the method by which it gets delivered and how long it takes us to get that food, right? If you, that's why the people um, that that are in the health and wellness space and nutrition will recommend going to a local grower, right? Right, because you want to get it as close to the source as possible, and so, you know, when you go to the big box chain stores, right? It's already been frozen. It's been sent. It's been weeks before it gets to you. And each day that passes, it loses a little bit of the nutrients. It loses its nutrients, right? And so by that time you get your salad in, in the bag, you know, are you really eating anything that has any nutrition? And right. And it's still better than chicken. Fried chicken. Probably still better than like the, the apple pie and stuff. Yeah. And when I say better, I mean healthier. Right, right. Definitely, yeah. But I will also say when, you, you know, from experience, when when I've eaten strictly healthy for a period of time, um, the fried chicken doesn't taste as good anymore. Right, right. It's like um, I don't know if you ever smoke cigarettes. No, I used to smoke cigarettes on occasion, like here and there, and then once you stop, then like the smell of it is like it, it, the smell of it never used to like really bother me that much anymore. But then the smell of it after, you're like, oh, it's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Um, it's like your body's like, no, 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 don't go back to that. Mm-hmm. Please don't do that. Yeah. Um that's kind of an awesome way to end it too we actually we got the we hit over one hour ten so, all right so the streak continues yeah we the streak go. continues we had a goal and, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, th- I still think you know we could rival joe rogan we can go for three we could, hours we could, we could do three i'm not gonna do that to you mike <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it in three segments yeah absolutely so guys i want, I want to thank you all i hope you, hopefully you guys learned something um i know i did you know, that, that's always the goal here. Free game, free, unrestricted game, life lessons. Michael, I appreciate, you know, the hell you come, man. Appreciate it. Thank you very he much flew for in and me. He's flying in and out today just through the podcast. It's my so pleasure. It's, awesome. it's good Thank to you. see you. Good to see you, man. Good to see you.